what you grew up on, but uh, I did not grow up with Dora the Explorer or this purple dinosaur Barney that my kids grew up with. I grew up with good old-fashioned Sesame Street. And if you grew up with Sesame Street, raise your hand, all right? Cookie Monster, the Grouch, teach our kids to be grouchy or something like that, I don't know. Uh, but I can remember that every every program, every day, every episode was always sponsored by a particular letter uh, or sponsored by a number. Well, today's message is sponsored by the number 40, okay? So just so you know that going into that, it's actually a very special number in Scripture. I'm not going to try to associate one with completion and one with meaning, anything like that. I think that's a little bit of uh, playing, uh, playing some kind of magic thing with numbers. But it actually does have significance from the Old to the New Testament. It's just kind of interesting the number of times you see the number 40 played out. You see it with Noah and the, the 40 days of rain on the earth. And you see it whenever Moses lived in the palace for 40 years, and you see it whenever he lived in the desert for 40 years, and then he comes back and he leads the people of Israel for 40 years. We also see that the, 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 uh, the people of Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years. So there's a very clear number 40 that continues to reappear when Jesus lived on the earth. How many days was he fasting and how many was he tempted for the, uh, from Satan? But for 40 days. So you see 40 as a significant number. This number that I mentioned today in 40 and that we're going to talk about today may not seem as significant, but I, I beg to differ. It is very significant and it's the 40 days, the last 40 days of Christ's ministry on the earth. All right. So we start back at Easter counting, okay? Whenever we celebrate His resurrection and we move it forward the next 40 days and how significant those were, how fundamentally important those are. And they're going to fit into the grand scheme of things as we finish up our series today on what on earth are you here for? We've been talking about this for 40 days. You've been reading through the book for 40, 42 days. Or if you're like me, it's taking you longer. Now, if you have been perfect in attendance and perfect in reading, then you're a better person than I am. I've missed a few days. I've had to catch up a few days. And, but, and some of y'all are maybe still in week one. I don't know. But just keep reading through. If it takes you 40 years, read it through and figure out your purpose on this earth. But it's, yeah, it kind of has a double uh, meaning to it. It's not just you individually. Sure, God gave you breath and has given you this time and place to exist in. But it's not just for you. What on earth are you here for is only part of the question or maybe the answer is only partly answered when we talk about you individually. But I really believe that he actually has a bigger picture that you fit into God's grander scheme of things and that you really won't fully understand your story or your meaning or your calling until you can figure out how it fits together beautifully with God's story and God's calling. So these go together. And one of the things that we see in the last 40 days of Christ's ministry is we get a little bit better picture on what his plan is moving forward and how he plans to carry out his purpose, his big picture uh, in this. And I, I'm a history buff. I like history. I could spend a whole lot of time in history and bore you with a lot of detail. So I'm not going to do that. 
But I do want to point out that there's some parallel track that we've kind of been tracking along here. You may not even have known it. Some of you may have. But uh, since Easter, where have we come? So let's just think about the first week, Easter 2014. So go back a couple of months, go back a little over 40 days, and you find that we were here. We had three worship services, 2,600 worshipers. But then go back to Jesus in his Easter. He had 20 worshipers. All right, we had more than Jesus did on Easter Sunday. Now that number is going to begin to change here uh, as we go along here. But uh, in, the, in the first Easter, uh, the first resurrection experience, uh, resurrection celebration, then uh, you find that there's just a handful of people that have hung out with Jesus. All right. So what happens then in the next 40 days, we have tried to parallel here. All right. Again, I didn't say it on the front end. I'm saying it on the back end. And I say it's all been intentional all the way through. We've tried to answer the question that the disciples were asking themselves. What are we going to do? What are we going to do now? Jesus is here and he's gone and he's come back and he's telling us he's going to leave again. So what are we going to do? Why are we here and how does all of this fit into the grand scheme of things? And so for the next 40 days, and I'm going to kind of focus on the right side, the next 40 days of his ministry, Jesus spends in 29 different passages, mind you, 29 different passages, 500 people saw him at one time, uh, Different people, he walks through doors, uh, Thomas touches his hands. There's very much a physical presence of Jesus. At the same time, there's a spiritual presence of Jesus that's going on on the earth. He's restoring Peter. His half-brother James becomes a follower of his. There's a lot that happens in those 40 days. But all of it is centered around them getting a sense of direction of why on earth they're here and what they're about and how it fits in to God's grand scheme of things. So let's go back to last Sunday, uh, May 29th. That would have marked the 40th day that Christ on the earth. And on that day, and I didn't mention it last week, I may have alluded to it, but it's the day of ascension. It's the day that we look back on and we say, okay, Jesus ascended into heaven and he told his disciples, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going to come again for you. So we got that promise that he is coming again. But we're kind of tracking along here, uh, parallel. So now we come to this Sunday. We wrap up the series, What on Earth Are We Here For? We're trying to put a bow on it, but we're also trying to move into next Sunday, which may be the most important day in the church history of all time, okay? Now, again, if you're not a history buff, please just appease me for a moment, all right? And just hang on. Because what happens, what marks next Sunday is what we call Pentecost Sunday, all right? Now, there's lots of interpretations of Pentecost, but we're not going to go back and try to get into denominationalism. I just want to focus on what happened on that day. 3,000 believers are come to faith in Christ on that day. Now, next Sunday is going to be a big Sunday for us. And again, trying to draw some parallels here. I will tell you this. If you're a member of Grace Point Church, it doesn't even need to be a question, are we going next week? That just needs to be an assumed fact. And if you are a serious attender and you are exploring your faith deeper and deeper and deeper each and every week and each and every day of your life, and you're just looking for that place to land and belong and plant yourself, then next Sunday needs to be non-negotiable. You need to be here. Why am I saying all that? Because just as 
the day of Pentecost was so significant in the life of the church. Some dispensational uh, 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 historians will tell you that it was on that day that the day of the church, the age of the church, was birthed. And that God's plan for the future, His hope for the world, that his, his, His message to all the nations and all the peoples of the world would be would come through his church would be launched on that day. And so let me just say this. Next Sunday, I'm gonna say it again if I haven't already said it, next Sunday is the single most important, maybe not the funnest, maybe not the most frills and spills, but the the most significant day of our calendar year. Alright? Now I'll i I'm gonna lead into it this week. But we're going to have more about it next week. And it's not, some, again, it's not a pomp and circumstance. It's not a, a, a show meeting or anything like that. It's not that at all. It's not the Walmart shareholders meeting either, all right? Or anything on that caliber. It is the most important day that we call it the strategy day. It's the day that we look back over the past year and we ask, what, God, have you been doing in our church, in our midst, in our family for the past year? And we take time and we look ahead. God, where are you leading us into the future? And how can we marry those together, celebrate the the past, but also look forward with excitement, anticipation, and courage as we move into the future? And I believe, if you take your Bibles, we find in the book of Acts chapter 4, we're going to pick up a few months, maybe a few years, I don't know exactly how long it is, probably more like months, nine months, maybe a year, between Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, all right, when the church really launched, because up until that point, Jesus kept saying, don't go, don't go, don't go, don't say anything. He even told them to go stay in the upper room until the Holy Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes and the church is released. We are released to the world. We're full of His presence and His power and His reality is in us. His presence is in us as followers of Christ and we are free to go into all the world. And I believe... That God absolutely, through Christ, it was not it, got, it was not man's invention. The church is not man's invention. It is God's initiative. It is not a machine. It is a movement. The day we become a machine is the day I want to quit. All right? The day I am through, I don't want to manage a machine. I want to be a part of a movement. And I hope you can appreciate the difference in the two. I hope that we're continuing to advance and continue to push back darkness, continue to make an impact. And that's why, again, I say next week is so important, but this week is a great lead in to that. God loves His church. He died for His church. He started His church. He launched His church. He sent His Spirit to the, into the church. And then He sends His church into the world. The church, whether it's in your economy or not, has a very big part to play in his economy. Jim Cimbala, a great writer, said it like this. It is evident that nothing else is more important to the Lord than the spiritual state of the local churches that bear his name. All right? Now, I'm not talking about buildings. Buildings can come and go. We spend half of our existence without a building. We're not talking about buildings. We're talking about people. We're talking about the, those who name the name of Christ. 
How is this church, how are we doing in bearing the name of Christ? He loves his church. He leads his church. He sacrificed for his church. He wants you and I to be his church. Now, what does that mean? How do I be? How am I? the church of God. And what does that look like? And how are we doing? That's a very legitimate question. How are we, if you name this as your church, how are we doing at being the church? Now we can, we can get really high at a very high level, 30,000 feet. We can look down and look at numbers and indicators and growth charts and spreadsheets all day long. And we do that. Not all day long, but we do it. But I want, to, I want to push it in a different direction. If we're really going to measure the quality of this church, let's not go macro. Let's go micro. Let's not look at the numbers and the spreadsheets and the charts and the graphs. Let's not do that yet. Let's not do that today. I want you, if you call this your church home, to take the next week, and I want you to do a fair, honest, objective as best you can, spirit-led assessment of you and your relationship with God and His church. I want you to ask yourself one simple question. All right? Jot it down. Ask yourself again and again, day after day, all week long. Here it is. Look in the mirror when you say it. What kind of church would this church be? if every member were just like me? What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? If every member prayed like me, gave like me, served like me, loved like me, invited like me, what kind of church would this church be? Take a real look inside, a deep look inside, and as you're Starting that process today, be turning in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to skip ahead past the day of Pentecost again. And we don't know how long, but we do know that God has been working in this church. Because we know from chapter 4, verse 4, that there's now at least 5,000 men. Now, it singles out men. So I'm assuming that with every man, hopefully there's a woman or, or close, okay? Uh, and, and there are probably a few children. Some historians have estimated, and it doesn't take a lot of math, that it could conservatively be considered that in the city of Jerusalem at this point, just a few short months from the launching of the church into the city of Jerusalem, that there's 15,000 believers. You talk about a movement, not a machine. You talk about forward progress. Not stuck at the line of scrimmage. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the church in the book of Acts. But not only that, they did not just grow larger. It wasn't just about getting bigger. It wasn't just about having more people. There was a quality of that church right down to the individual person. That's why I don't want to just go macro. I want to go micro. What does the individual person look like? How do I fit into that, into that picture? And listen, it was not an easy day to live and be a Christian. In any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it's that easy today if you really live out your Christian faith. But look at the environment that they were living in. Verse 27 uh, of chapter 4, it says, And truly, in this city, the city of Jerusalem, 
there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus. (laughs) The city council, the religious leaders, the spiritual authorities, the government officials had come out and had declared that this Christianity has got to stop. There is a lot of things wrong with this Christianity. I don't like this Christianity. It's upsetting the, 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 the apple cart. It's messing with the status quo. And we've got to stop this Jesus movement thing. Not everybody in this culture, in this world, in our community will like it when we have a conservative biblical, let me just call it that, view on marriage. Not everybody in this culture, in this society are going to like it whenever we have morals. They're going to want you to have situational ethics. They're going to want you to alter your your values. But what I would hope and pray that, that your life and your faith with Jesus Christ is so penetrating and so saturating that you're not just a you're not a fan of Jesus, but you're a fanatic follower of him. Not a crazy, I'm not talking about crazy whatever, but I'm talking about cult-like whatever. I'm talking about somebody who seriously is devoted to him. And so let's look at the micro, okay? Let's ask ourselves four questions today. As we're asking ourselves the simple question, what on, uh, I mean, excuse me, not what on earth, but uh, if every member were just like me, what kind of church would this be? I just did that totally messed up in reverse. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? As you're asking that question, ask yourself four more. One is, do I have the boldness and the tenacity? The boldness and the tenacity to tell the good news of Christ. We're timid. We're shy. We're bashful. We're backward. I don't want to be that. I want to have the boldness to give the good news of Christ, the gospel. And listen, I know the gospel is used and thrown out a lot. And what does the word gospel mean? It's a very Christianese kind of word, and I want to avoid that. Here's what I call the gospel. I want to know that I am speaking about the work of Christ on the cross, the resurrection, giving hope and peace and reconciliation between God and even between others. See, the, the beauty of being in relationship with Christ It helps me live at peace within, but it also helps me to live at peace without. Peace within and peace without. That's the power of the gospel. Why wouldn't I want to get that word out? Why am I shy and timid about my faith? Why why would I keep it to myself? Even Paul prayed that he would have boldness. But look at this. Look at verse 29. Right after Peter and John just spent time in the lockup, just right after Peter and John just appeared before 70 plus elders and scribes and leaders and told to keep their mouth shut and don't to preach the gospel anymore and don't tell the good news anymore and don't talk about Jesus anymore, what did they say? We can't. We must. We must. We must. We must talk about Christ. And then he said this. They prayed this. Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. I want boldness. I want tenacity. I want to be fearless. I want to be courageous in my faith. We need to be that way as we live out our faith. Paul prayed that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. Pray for me too. Ask God to give me 
the right words so that I can boldly explain God's mysteries. I want to boldly get it out there. I don't want to be timid or shy or backward or held back. We want leaders. We need a pastor. We need pastors. We need ministers. You're the ministers. We need deacons. We need trustees. We need leaders. We need body life group leaders. And none of us need to be timid about our faith. You don't have to be brash and ugly and nasty, but we don't need to hold it back. We're going to in fact, deacons, it says that specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, for those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and great boldness in the faith. Next week, we're going to vote on three new deacons for our church. The pictures will appear here. Larry Robinson, who's been a deacon before, is rotating, wanting to rotate back on. Jason Oglesby, who actually he and his family were at the very last Sunday at Benville High School, they were there on that day and they've been with us ever, ever since. Bob Myers has been in the church uh, for a number of years. He, <clears throat> he and his family, they serve in South Arkansas uh, every summer. Body Life Group leaders, we need people like these guys here to help lead our church with boldness and tenacity. But we need you. Please, please, see yourself as a part of this. Ask yourself the question, what kind of church would this church be if every member in this church had the boldness that I have? Had the tenacity of sharing my faith? You know, I think about the work that we do in Africa. And I think about all the, all, all the reasons not to go to Africa. And I hear it all the time. You know, you spend so much time talking about Africa. We live here. We're supposed to be on mission here. We live here 365 days a year. Going there two weeks out of the year, give me a break. 50 weeks here, two weeks there. I love it whenever people will push past the fears and the intimidations and the excuses and the reasons why to go on mission with God. Especially think about Jane Strack, a 66-year-old grandmother in our first service. Grandmother of four grandchildren and how she went with us to, went with me on my last trip to West Africa and uh, how she answered the call in one of the services just like this when I said, I need one more woman to go. And she stepped up and stepped forward and she went. A beautiful story of how as a nurse, she just ministered and loved and served the people in the village. And one time I caught her with just my iPhone and I just caught her with the camera and I just said, tell me why you... And why should everyone else be here? And this is what she said. Why me? I came to Mali because God called me to Mali. All my family and friends said I was too old. It was dangerous. I might get sick. But God let me know that the only thing I had to fear was losing trust in him. I came and the Malians stole my heart away. I never imagined that I would be so blessed to be used by God and to experience the hearts of these people. 
that are so open and so loving. Why you? If I can do it, you can do it. And God will give you the grace and the strength to accomplish his purpose. And nothing will stop you. I want to be a pastor of a church of courageous people, of bold people, of fearless people who are ready to do and go and be and become wherever and whatever God calls us to become. No excuses. If you're looking for a comfy seat in an air-conditioned building where you can get spoon-fed, go somewhere else. If you want to be called out to do what you've never been never done before, go where you've never gone before, push, challenge, pull, called up, then you're in the right place. Number two, question you need to ask yourself, we need to ask ourselves is this. Am I a communitas member? Am I a communitas member? Am I, am I a part of a communitas? You think, Mike, what's that? <laughs> I'm glad you asked. All right. We're going to talk about this because you need to understand there's a difference between community and communitas. All right. I'm wearing it on my shirt today. I'm modeling this. We'll talk about how you can get this fine, fancy sportswear uh, next Sunday. Uh, I'm just the model. All right. I've always wanted to be a model, and that's what I am today. Uh, so anyway... I want to give you a picture of the difference between the two. Because you can have community on your softball league. You can have community in your neighborhood. But it doesn't mean you have communitas. There's a difference. We don't want to be just a community of huddles and cuddles, all right? We want to be a communitas about a movement, about making change, about serving people, about touching lives, about seeing change in people's lives. Look at this real quickly. You see community. You have to have community before you can move to communitas, all right? And so look at verse 32. It says this, And now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. You're seeing community lived out there. If it stopped there, you'd say, Oh, that's a sweet church. I want to go there. All right? Everybody's happy there. But it doesn't just end there. All right? They keep going. They didn't just have a happy, warm hearts and all in one accord. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Now we're taking action. Now we're anting it up. It's not just that we're going to all get along and go along. We're now going to get along, go along, and we're going to get along and make sure that there's not anybody with hurts and pains and suffering and missing out on something. And they had everything in common. And a great power of the apostles giving the testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And the great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them. Here's what happens when you have community. You have a great, sweet potluck dinner in somebody's home. You have a a good time hanging out together. When you have communitas, you have movement. You have moving forward. Community, think about it in the terms of a circle. We all get our chairs in a circle. We all sit in a room and we all talk about ourselves and we all talk about uh, about our own needs and we might pray for our Uncle Larry's liver who's having surgery next week, but that's about it. 
That's about as missional as we get. We're not about that. That's the natural way to go. We are about communitas. Communitas is where we are more of a triangle, where we're pointing in a certain direction, where we're going somewhere, where we're moving towards something. The mission is not about us. The mission is in front of us, and we're moving towards that. That's where we want to go. That's what we want to be about. You might look at this. Alan Hirsch defines community this way. The settled experience of a group of people that exist for its own benefit and for the insiders. Now think about it like this. I have coffee with some buds. We hang out together. That's community. I got some friends at the gym and we hang out. We high five and we do all that kind of stuff. That's community. I have a softball league. I I help coach a soccer team. It's community. We're not necessarily about our insiders and protecting our insiders. We are a church that's about communitas. What's the difference? The journey, it's actually a Latin word. It's actually a Latin noun. It means this, the journey of a group of people that find each other only in a common pursuit of a vision and of a mission that lies beyond itself. Its energies are primarily directed outward and forward. It's not about us. It's about them. It's about those not yet here. It's about those who don't yet know Christ. It's about the hurting and the dying and the suffering. It's how can we as a communitas be a part of helping others. Again, you go back to that passage. They weren't just in one accord and with one heart. They were with one accord and one heart, but they were also bringing their pocketbooks to the table. They were also bringing their hands to the table. They were also bringing their skills to the table. They were available to serve one another because they lived in communitas. Communitas, as we're defining it here, is a community for the community. Not a community for us. Not, I got a warm fuzzy because I went to group tonight. It's a community for the community. How can I be focused outside of myself? Now, next Sunday, we're going to kind of peel back some layers on this, all right? And how this fleshes out on many different levels. In fact, I want to encourage you, strategy means what we call next Sunday. And I want to encourage you again, I won't go through the whole spill, but members need to be here. Uh, Serious attenders, you need to be here. If you're looking for a church home to plant yourself and to become something, you need to be here. And I got a big old QR code up there right now. Take your stupid smartphones and, and, and zap it. And, and I don't care. Quit, tune me out and sign up. All right. And then when you, when you sign up, then what you're going to do is you're also going to get to be a part of, well, we're going to have food and we're going to have jump castles, all that. But it's not about community. It's not just about us having a good time and filling our pie holes. It, it, it's more than that. It's about communitas. So what we want to do is we want to be about the community. So next Sunday, we're going to try to mobilize all of everyone in this room and plus the last service, and we're going to come back in that afternoon, and we're going to have lunch, but we're going to turn around and serve our community. You know for a long time that we've been about helping orphans and helping foster children in our, in our own church. I don't have time to develop that completely, but yet we know of, we've identified a need, we've seen a need in the community, and we want to help meet it, because we are a communitas, not just a community. How are we going to do that? So for example... Let me just paint out a scenario for you. Real life scenario happens all the time, maybe every day. I don't know, in Benton County or Washington County. Six-year-old boy is growing up in a home. All he knows for the past six years of his life is mom and daddy are high all the time. He can't even call it high. He just calls them mom and dad. 
because that's all he knows. All of a sudden, in a matter of seconds, in the middle of the night, everything, lights, cameras, action outside, the doors are busted down, the police come in, they raid the house, they find a meth lab, they take mom and dad, they put them in one police cruiser, and they take the six-year-old boy by himself and they put him in another police cruiser. Mom and daddy go there, not to be seen again for a very, very long time. Six-year-old boy goes this way. Because he's grown up in a meth house, he's got meth in his skin, he's got meth on his clothes, he's got meth in his toothbrush, he's got meth in everything he's got in his house, everything he owns. And he might be carried out into the police cruiser with nothing but the clothes on his back. And he is taken to DHS. At that time, he becomes a, a person of the state. And this kid has nothing. What we want to do is we want to fill a gap. And so next Sunday, what we're going to try to do is we're going to uh, prepare, for lack of a better word, a thousand care packages. That when that child comes out of that home and has nothing, doesn't have a pillowcase, doesn't have a toothbrush, doesn't have anything at all, the very first thing they're going to get is their own pillowcase, their own shampoo, their own toothbrush, their own hygiene, basic necessities, and it's going to be theirs and it's going to be given to them in a little backpack. And you get to be a part of that. You sign up, you become a part of next, next Sunday strategy meeting and the post service because it's going to be at noon and immediately following this service. You hang around, you get to be a part of it. You bring some items, we're going to have some items. And you bring your items and we're going to put them in the sacks and we're going to put them in the backpacks and we're going to gather it all up. And then you, and this is a great thing, you get to do it with your children. So now you get to tell the story with your children. You get to serve with your children. Now your children, listen to what? Your children's paradigm of the church begins to be shaped because now no longer is the church about what entertainment did I get at kids' church today, but now what did I do to contri- contribute to the community? Because now they're going to get to go over to a little table and they're going to write, write a, a personal note to a kid that they'll never see, never know, or whatever, but just said this package was prepared with love. They'll put it in the package, and they're going to walk away. But there'll be a kid that will receive that one day. Here's the beauty of community and mission. When community and mission marry, they produce communitas. And we want to be about being a communitas. Hope you get that. Third question to ask yourself, does my giving match my blessing? Everyone in this room, I don't care who you are, what your income is, or whatever, we've all been blessed. Can we, can we at least agree on I've been blessed? I've got clothes. I've got a home. I got here somehow. I'll probably have a meal after this or two or more. We can just line up the blessings and name them one by one. But what if we took our blessings, and we said, God, according to the way you've blessed me, I want to bless someone else. I want to be a part of a chain of blessing. A great church, an amazing church, a church that's a movement, a church I want to be a part of is a church that sees itself as being a part of that. But listen, that means I've got to contribute to it. It's not going to happen in a vacuum. It's not going to happen on its own. And that's exactly what you find in verse 34. And there was not a needy person among them. Why was that? For as many as uh, as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds. 
what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any one had need. I love that statement. No one had a need because why? Why? Because people were bringing resources, gifts, and blessings, laying at the apostles' feet so it could be distributed to where there was a need. We don't know when the tomorrow's need's going to happen. We, we, we anticipate needs as we move forward into our budgeting process. How does this kind of stuff happen? And I really don't have time to develop this, so you're just going to take my word for it and read it on your own. But when you read the rest of chapter 4, you're going to find that Barnabas is the guy that comes on the scene. And Barnabas becomes a, a, a major player in the New Testament church. But one of the things you've got to notice about Barnabas is he was one of the most generous individuals on the planet. It says in verse 36, it says, Thus Joseph, who was also called uh, by the apostles Barnabas, which means encouragement, a Levite, a, na- a native of Cyprus, sold a field, that belonged to him and brought the money and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Here's this man who was evidently wealthy enough. He owned land. He sold the land. He bought the proceeds and he laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, in your own time, and I don't have time to to go over this, I want you to compare and contrast on your own this week Acts chapter 4 and the generous giving of Acts chapter 4 and the stingy, selective giving of Acts chapter 5. Read it on your own. It's worth looking at. Here's the reality of it all. A person's giving says more about a person's spiritual health and growth than many other indicators. Jesus said, your heart, where your treasure is, your heart is there. If I'm not sharing my blessings, however God has blessed me. Listen, don't give what you don't have. Don't give how you've not been blessed. Calculate your blessings and then give according to that. How has God blessed you? Now, there are, there are name it and claim it, blab it and grab it preachers out there that will say, if you'll give me a dollar, God will give you ten. I'm not saying that. Take what God has blessed you with and give according to that. How has God blessed you? The reality is 40% of Christians people who call themselves Christians, I might say, don't give a dime. Forty percent. Don't give a dime, but yet they'll call themselves a Christian. Of those who say, I tithe, actually only four percent of Christians tithe. There's a real problem in our our faith community whenever we're not willing to step up and become a part of the blessing process. God gives to us that we can give to Him, that God can give to us that we can give to Him. And this cycle goes on and on and on. Ministry that costs nothing, accomplishes nothing. Put that down, big, plain, and straight. Next week, we're going to present a budget to you. That is, we call it a ministry budget, and it is in every sense of the word. We've got some great trustees that help oversee all this. It's a third party, separate from our pastoral team, that helps oversee it. We're going to add two more next week, trustees to the to the hopper uh, that we've already got some great ones on. Uh, Randy Roebuck, Scott Huff will be joining uh, our, our trustees, uh, Lord willing, next week. And we're just excited about adding them to the mix and, and, and to the ministry that we have going on here. Where does it go? Where does it go? Where's the dollar go? If you see where, want to see where a dollar goes, you give $1, $100, $1,000, you can break it down pretty much like this. 30% of that's going to go to take care of your children and my children. 30% of that's going to go to reach the children of our own community. 
30% of that's going to help the next generation come to faith in Christ, and then you can just break it down the rest of the way. We're going to invest in the future. We're going to invest in ministry. We're going to invest 12% in reaching those who've never even heard of the gospel. Now, some people complain we could do too much missions. Listen, there's only 12% of it there. I wish there was more. Fourth and final question. What kind of church would this church be if every member were just like me? Well, then you have to ask the question, am I spirit-filled and spirit-led? Now, that may be just all too mysterious and twilight zoney for you. Hang, Hang with me on this. Because this is probably, I was actually on the, on, on the road to, uh, this past, uh, Friday over towards Tulsa and this, it was in my mind, and this just jumped off the page at me. Uh, not that I was reading. I was just off the uh, page of my mind, okay, while I was driving. I want to clarify that. Um, verse 31 points out something here that you don't want to miss. Up until this point, let me just give you the context. Up until this point, the disciples, John and Peter, primarily, were the ones who did the preaching, were the ones who who led people to Christ. Pretty much all we see up until this point. And now we see something else happening. We see the church really becoming the church. Where every single person in the church that's Spirit-filled now becomes exactly what Peter and John... See, Peter and John have nothing on you and me. I have nothing on you. You're, you, nobody has anything on you when the Spirit of God is filling you. Because the same word that Peter and John prayed, Lord, we want to speak with boldness, verse 29, we find the same thing happening in the disciples in verse 31. And when they prayed, the place in which they had gathered together, shaken and was all filled, and the Holy Spirit continued to speak the word with what? Boldness. The same word that was used to describe Peter and John, these great giants of the faith, is now being used to describe the unknown people in the church. Now, how does that pertain to you and me? Here, here, here. Listen to this. Let me ask you a question, and maybe that'll help apply it. What's the God factor in your life? What's the only thing that's happening in you that could not be explained outside of the Spirit of God at work in you? See, these unknown people become just as powerful, just as influential, just as as impacting of people's lives as the big people on the stage. As the Peters and the Johns and the Andrews and the Matthews, they become just as powerful because they became filled with the same Spirit that the same Spirit that filled Peter and John are now filling the people. You have an element to play in all the God's story. When you allow the Spirit of God to fill you, you have a part to play and God wants to use you in it. Where and what is the God factor in your life? I love the God factor in Glenn and Judy Patterson in our church whose children 
grown and moved out of the house and all that. But yet, they've allowed space in their life for four foster children to move in. I love the Stamillis right down here and the God factor in their life. How they came across and met Miss Ruby. And how Penny is pouring in to, to Miss Ruby and uh, met Miss Ruby whenever they started visiting in a nursing home. Uh, and Miss Ruby's husband had bone cancer. And how they found that she lives in a house that's over a hundred years old and how they have taken on Miss Ruby as just their, their little, a part of their family. And how Miss Ruby likes McDonald's cheeseburgers and Penny will take her McDonald's cheeseburgers. And how Pete has got out and their body life group has got out and worked in Miss Ruby's yard and helping to make it clean and right and proper. Just serving, just loving. There's not a needy person among them because they are a communitas in a community and they're looking for needs and they're going to meet them themselves. They're not going to pass it off. They're not going to give excuses. They're going to be a part of a communitas. That's what they are. I love, I love Kevin Agee. Kevin has just amazed me all along in every ministry of our church. But last Wednesday night, or a couple of Wednesday nights ago, how he spent 20 minutes in the boys. He works with our youth, all right? Boys, youth, in the bathroom, plunging toilets. Because teenage boys were teenage boys. And for 20 minutes in a as one person told me, gagging reflex smells coming from the bathroom. But Kevin Agee was not too big for the little job. Somebody told me a long time ago, if you're too big for the little jobs, you're too little for the big jobs. See, when you become full of the Holy Spirit and you become a part of a communitas and you see yourself as a part of the, uh, the ministry and you see yourself as a part of being able to meet people's needs in your life and through the blessings that God has given you, then you actually become a, a great example of what it means to live that Spirit-filled life. I love just this past weekend that the Loomis's group, 18 folks up here, I've seen it, a beautiful stage and beautiful display getting ready for day camp spent all day yesterday when i'm out doing my thing playing with my friends they're up here serving giving of themselves preparing for day camp so that they could serve the next generation i got a question for you what kind of church would this church be if every member were just like you we're just like me we're bold like me lived missionally like me, gave like me, were filled with the Spirit like me.